It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Welcome, movie lovers, to another episode to Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. I am Scott, and joining me as always is Lauren. Hi. Uh, here at Movies You Should Love, we try to look at all the classic movies, both uh, modern and classic. Uh, and we try to kind of pick them apart. We try to figure out why they work, what makes them such great movies. Um, sometimes we mock them a little bit because sometimes some of these movies that, you know, you should love aren't necessarily movies we love anymore. Sometimes those movies will surprise us and we will kind of walk away going, you guys, this is a movie you should love. That's what we do here. It's kind of like uh, film school without the doing. Um, today we're going to be talking about number nine on AFI's top 100 or number one on BFI's top 100, uh, Vertigo. But before we get into all that, uh, Lauren, you sent me an article that was super interesting. Why don't you uh, kind of share with everybody uh, this article and what you think about it? Yeah, um, this article was in the LA Times, uh, July 19, I think it was published. Um, And basically, um, basically it's an article about... Uh, this year's crop of movies, and specifically the box office. Um, technically, box office is up this year. Um, it's it's up about six point seven percent over two thousand eleven, uh, which is great. Until you actually look at the numbers, um, and if you take out the top like three movies, like Dark Knight and Avengers and Hunger Games, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, if you take if you take out like those top movies, it turns out that box office is actually down eleven percent for the rest of the film spectrum, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, basically, this article is kind of asking uh, the question: you know, it, how how can this be worth it to studios at this point? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when sp- studios are making their John Carters and you know, all, all of these movies and spending, you know, 200, 300 million dollars to make them. And then, you know, they, they gross 60 million or, you know, a couple, maybe close to making their, their money back, you know, worldwide or something, you know, how can they keep dealing with these losses? Right. Um, you know, it's, it's always been that, you know, 20% of the movies make a hundred, you know, 80% of the revenues or whatever, you know, it's, you know, that's, that's always how Hollywood has worked, but those margins are getting even more narrow. And, and it seems like Hollywood has really dropped out kind of that middle ground sort of movie. You're not getting kind of these, you know, these movies that cost 20 or 30 or $40 million to make. You're, you're getting, you know, either like no budget kind of films or these movies that are, you know, two hundred million dollars. You don't have yeah. you don't have an eighty million dollar movie anymore. You know, you right. don't have something that might you know, even if it doesn't perform super well, it can still kind of make that budget back. Mm-hmm. And so, um yeah, that's kind of what the article is about. What what do you think about all that, Scott? What are you I will respond with a sports analogy. Um <laughs> <laughs> which is super weird for me, I know. But uh something that my dad taught me when I was playing t-ball and then a little bit of softball in high school was that you know to the to the crowd to the lay person who approaches softball or baseball you always want to hit a home run it's like that's people kind of assume that is the goal of baseball it's like a good hit is a home run that's what everybody wants right I mean it's it's a point or it's at least one point every single time 
But the problem with that is it, it's impossible actually to always hit a home run um, because no matter how hard you train, you don't know what pitch is going to be thrown at you. Some pitches are actually impossible to turn into home runs. Um, doesn't matter how strong you are. And then you have other times where the pitcher just doesn't want you to hit the ball at all. And so they're going to make sure that you walk or whatever. The way to actually win a game is to have continual and constant base hits. You know, just hit the ball in a way that always gets one person on base, that always moves the runner just a little bit further around the bases. And if you do that, you will always basically win the game. If you can always place your hits so that you just hit it in just the right spot, so that you always move, per, you know, one person on the base. And to me, it seems like the people who are running some of the studios now seems to be approaching the movie game in the same way the fans approach sports. They want to hit a home run every time. They want to see these home runs. And it seems like they would be they would be the smarter people in the situation going, actually, guys, let's let's hit 12 base hits this year. Let's, you know, let's get some solid stuff out there that May, that costs a little bit less. That maybe doesn't make as much up front in the box office, but all we we, we can guarantee we're going to make our money back, um, either in DVD sales or rentals or in the box office because honestly we're spending less on it. Um, to me, it seems kind of a shame that that's not happening. It seems weird to me that I mean it's one of those things where it's like Hollywood always kind of seems to learn the wrong lesson. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they don't when they see that um when they see the movie that mars needs moms fails at the box office what they hear is people don't like mars movies anymore drop uh, of mars from john carter (laughs) you know it's like no that's what (laughs) that makes no sense (laughs) um and so they or like oh people like that movie let's put that actor in it because he you know thor was great so let's put crimson Chris Hemsworth in everything, you're like, mm-hmm. no, that's not the that's not the lesson to learn from Thor. Yes, Chris Hemsworth should be in more movies. I liked him, but uh, you know, it it seems weird that the lessons they kind of pick and choose from success and failures of their movies. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it makes me kind of sad because what's funny, you sent me this article, and almost uh, just this morning I read, and I don't know if this is to be trusted. It was in the Sun, which is a British newspaper, but apparently Johnny Depp is going to be paid ninety-five million dollars for uh, Pirates of the Caribbean Five. Wow, which is yeah, like I, I like the Pirates movies. I would love, I'll go watch the next one, um, but that's insane, and it kind of completely plays into this exact conversation of just like this huge gambles and they kind of feel pirates is a safe bet johnny depp is a safe bet um so they're, they're comfortable spending 95 million dollars on one actor mm-hmm. but because when you think last- of it i mean that means you, you you suddenly have to make up front without having shot a frame of film you have to make at least 95 million dollars exactly and the last movie. the last one uh the last movie that according to the article made 1.09 billion dollars mm-hmm. And so that to them, $95 million mm-hmm. towards a billion makes sense. And, and, that's, and, and I'll believe that. I'll, I'll actually completely believe that on Pirates, because you have both domestic and international distribution, yeah, yeah, plus yeah. DVD sales. And, you know, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm there with it. I can... That being said, just think about how many movies could be made. I mean, I, I had the same reaction when we went and saw the Peter Jackson's King Kong, which, a movie that I generally enjoyed until <laughs> King Kong was like uh, on ice. At the end of the movie, we're just kind of skating around on ice, doing his little Bambi routine. Um, it just that sequence hurt me because 
it it didn't further the story. It was kind of silly, and it was actually to me it was kind of ridiculous considering the fact that you know at this point the military is chasing him. Um, and I just I knew that that sequence probably cost thirty million dollars to make. <laughs> you know, I'm like, how many short, how many independent films could have been funded for this ape on ice sequence? This really kind of hurts you guys. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not saying that this is the way that they need to the way Hollywood needs to go, but I think uh, and, and this article specifically cites it um, is uh, the movie Ted that came out this summer, right? Um, which I haven't I haven't seen, no, but haven't. It, it it cost about sixty million bucks to make. And domestically, it made like $160 million. That's here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It made $100 million on top of its budget. Plus, it still had all of international distribution and all of DVD and rental and everything still to go. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, that's a movie that could make, you know, five, six hundred, seven hundred million dollars by the end of its run. And only cost $60 million to make, versus a movie that, you know, you're kind of betting on, and you spend $200 million, yeah, can't even make that back just, you know, here in the U.S., and then, you know, if it, even if that makes, you know, $500, $600 million worldwide with DVD sales and everything, you've actually cut your margin in significantly more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I really do think that that I think that there's an, a huge opportunity for Hollywood to kind of get back into maybe doing some of the smaller movies. Maybe not everything has to be, you know, Battleship and, right. um, you know, just these huge, huge movies. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting that this article um, mentioned is kind of this concept that the business is changing because, you know, people have home theaters now, mm-hmm. people... Um, you know, ticket prices cost so much. Um, I yeah. mean, you know, if you think about it, if you take, you know, if, if you're a typical family and you've got your two kids and, you know, two adults and you're going to the movies, you know, that's four people and you're going to spend 80 bucks before you even get popcorn. Yeah. If you, know? you want to see the IMAX in 3D, forget yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're somewhere between 60 to $80 for a night out, which... For most people today, I mean that is that's an investment. That's a you know that's not yeah. something you can just go. Oh, let's go to the movies. Let's go do this. That's a all right. Well, we've been saving and now we have an extra eighty dollars in our budget, and so let's go to the movies. See, yeah, that that's ridiculous. And um, you know, and so um, you know, it seems like people are getting into kind of this rather rather than to to. Um, to kind of going to like a destination where it's like, yeah, we're going to the movies. It's kind of like a there is a specific movie that we want to watch. It's worth us worth it for us to pay to go see this in the theater, you know. And so it's not a the act of going to the theater is not a let's go to the theater and see what's interesting playing because yeah. we love movies. It's a we can get movies so many ways. And we think the theater is okay because we want to go see the new Star Wars, or we want to yeah. go see the you know a very specific kind of thing. Yeah, and you know, and I think Hollywood has kind of done this to itself. Oh, well, it absolutely I, has. Yeah, but it's changing the paradigm of what the theater is mm-hmm. to people, and um, you know, I, I think that really scares Hollywood, uh, which it probably should. I think you know, I, I think yeah, and. In a, in a perfect world, what I would like to see are, is a broader spectrum of movies. Mm-hmm. You know, where you have the. To me, I like a big summer blockbuster. I love the Avengers. I, we really enjoyed the Hunger Games. We enjoyed the Dark Knight. I want those mm-hmm. movies in my in my spectrum of the year of movie watching. Mm-hmm. But I would love for you know movies kind of like Vertigo to come out, which mm-hmm. 
you know, I'm not, I don't know what the budget was back then, but today it would be a very, very cheap movie to make. Give me something nice and strong, something mm-hmm. that's, you know, just a good, well put together movie. I don't even need, you know, from my, you know, I, from comedies, I don't need Adam Sandler to be in every single comedy. I don't need those big recognizable names. I want something funny that just makes me laugh. You know, and it's like, I think there's a lot of comedians and a lot of really funny writers who could put something together like Airplane, which had, I mean, I don't don't know if at the time it had anybody in it that was really a big star or catch. But looking back on it now, most of those people aren't really that recognizable, except for maybe Leslie Nielsen, who has basically an extended cameo. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, I would like to see more stuff like that coming out. Just like, just, you know, even smaller movies, maybe... I mean, I know Hollywood would never do this, but maybe bring some of those theater prices down a little bit because right now, yeah, I'm not going to... Right now, it's just Kelly and me, but even still, we still, due to the movie prices and due to the quality television that we have, um, we judge our movies. We go, is that worth $30 for the two of us to go see the newborn movie? Or let's let's wait till it hits the $2 theater. That way, well, our $2 theater is now a three fifty, but even still, it's only $7. Mm-hmm. We'll wait till that. Or you know what? We'll wait for it to come out on DVD. We, you know, that's an approach we've had for some time, and this, this to me is it's even widening it even more because you have a movie like Battleship come out, and it does not interest us at all. It just doesn't like the the trailer was laughable. I'm sorry to those who worked on it, but we just kind of went, what? It, it didn't interest anyone, to be fair. Yeah, and part I of mean, the problem. I, with I it. feel bad because I know some people put a lot of work into it, and I know that's a lot of you know a lot of work, a lot of heartache and sweat went into that movie. But when you watch the trailer, and the first thing you think of is is Hungry Hungry Hippos next summer movie. You know, it's like that's not good because you just spent two hundred million dollars, and people are are already kind of giggling at your concept, and mm-hmm. that's not good. So yeah. you know, the the one thing that this article does say is that um you know it, it also talks to some some people who've done smaller movies and mm-hmm. you know and they say it's almost impossible to get an, an audience in um you know you'd even think like just a few people would stumble through the door kind of accidentally mm-hmm. into the movie and you know it's it's very hard to get an audience um, for th- a small movie that doesn't have the marketing blitz of say a dark knight or something like that right but that, i think that's the thing that movie studios could do if you're not spending 300 million dollars just to make the movie mm-hmm. you could spend a little bit more on advertising i mean mm-hmm. as it is right now you you have like those three movies a year that just completely invade your hulu and your television commercial experience like are you, you're gonna see avatar right avatar avatar you can see avatar right you're watching so you think you can dance and you know a little Krylon comes along the bottom like don't forget this movie that's coming out this summer you could do that for some of those smaller films and your budget could still stay pretty low I think of a movie like um, Safety Not Guaranteed that Kelly and I went and saw we both really enjoyed it and it's a small movie you know it's got some really solid actors in it but none of them that are demanding a 20 million dollars salary so it's like it seems like that whole movie could have been made for 20 million dollars or less and so you could spend a little bit more on advertising and get some of those people in. I think the reason people don't go to some of those movies, uh, the smaller movies, is because Hollywood has trained them not to trust them. Yeah. You know, Hollywood has said, if it doesn't have Adam Sandler and Chris Rock and Mike Birbiglia in it, like, oh, I, don't, I don't care. And I'm sorry, Mike Birbiglia hasn't been in very many movies. He's just one of my favorite comedians, and it just came to my head. But, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They've trained us to look for those big names. And that's, you know, you can trust this movie because it has that one guy in it that you love. We already kind of do that. We already know what actors we like. So now mm-hmm. show us that we can 
we will go to a $30 million movie. We don't need huge budgets. That honestly doesn't impress us that much. Mm-hmm. It just makes us go, oh, they're serious about this one. It's not $200 million to do it. It's supposed to be good. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's been so many of those $200 million movies at this point that that it's kind of like, oh, well, we'll go to the ones that look good. You know, at the end of yeah. the day, it's like, you know, Batman, Hunger Games, and uh, there was a third one that you Avengers. mentioned. Uh, Avengers. You know, those are... We know the stories. We know where they're headed. They're franchises that we're already comfortable with, and they look like they're really good versions of these things. And that's what's scary to me, too, is that when you look at this year in video games, it's been a very bad year for video game sales. And when you look at the games that were released this year, a lot of them were number three or number four or number five in a franchise. And when you get that far into a franchise, you you either have people who love it and will show up no matter what, or you have people who weren't interested from day one. Mm-hmm. You know, I know some people who aren't interested at all in the Hunger Games. Never were. They kind of assume it's another Twilight, and they're just not going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I know people who are not interested in the Avengers and Batman, and just like, it's not my cup of tea. And so immediately, those studios are already out those <laughs> out those sales. Yep. That, that terrifies me as a as a person who wants to make movies. It's just kind of go, man. It's like, why would you spend? Why would you spend that much money when? What, well, it was one of those movies that came out this year. Rock of Ages, to me, was very interesting until I heard all of the reviews. And I had friends who literally walked out of the theater because, like, this is terrible, you guys. And it, it's a huge star-studded lineup. It's a musical, which is not everybody's cup of tea. But it's like, you can't even bank on Tom Cruise and Alec Baldwin in a movie together anymore? Mm-hmm. Who knows how much money you had to pay those two just to be in it? This is crazy. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems like it seems like Hollywood needs to settle down a little bit and just focus on making some good stuff and you know making good bets. Obviously, you can't guarantee every movie is going to turn out great. You can't turn. You can't guarantee that every movie is going to be as good as the script. Mm-hmm. Or, well, it just that there's an audience for it. But I mean, make you know make your best guess. Like this mm-hmm. looks good. This looks entertaining. It's small, but we can make this great. Yeah, it just seems that, you know, if you have that $200 million to burn, turn it into uh, three or four movies instead of one and hedge your bets through quantity versus, you know, trying for that home run. And then again, then again, I, I get, you know, if you are the executive who gets that home run, you know, you're set for life probably. So, you know, I think that that, I think in the business side of things, I'm sure that is a safe bet. Like, yeah, because you can, you oh. can justify it, but that at the same time... Really Think of those surprise home runs like the Blair Witch Project or mm-hmm. The Sixth Sense. You know, you look at those movies and you're like, especially Blair Witch was a tiny movie that was made for about a quarter. Well, and even think about like The Sixth Sense. I mean, that's not an expensive movie. There's very, very little. I mean, you get Bruce Willis in it, but he might have. Yeah, you know, I don't know what he worked on it for, but even if you had to pay him, I mean, there's not much else in that movie that yeah. costs much to do. It's it's just kind of actors in locations, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even when ghosts and things start showing up, they're it's not, not. It's not special effect heavy and yeah, anything like that. Yeah. So anyhow, but this actually, anything else you want to? No, uh, let's just say we're going to link to this article on our on our website, moviesyoushouldlove dot com, and uh, you know, take a look and let us know what you think about it. Because you know, is that something that you, as the listener, are up for? Like, do you want smaller movies, or do you actually? not care about it or or when you think about it are some of your favorite movies maybe things that actually were like 60 million dollar movies that kind of you know stood out from the rest and yet 
you know, you don't really think of them that way because they're just great films, you know, like a Sixth Sense or, or something like that. Now, let us know on our website. This segues very nicely into a movie that Kelly and I went and saw uh, this week. It was Men in Black 3. It's been out in theaters for a while now. It's at our cheap theater. And it, we it, this was not a movie that we chose to wait on. It just happened that we kind of missed it when it was in the theaters. We like Will Smith. We like the franchise. Um, we just didn't get to see it. Um, kind of glad I only spent three fifty on it, to be honest. It was a little disappointing. Um, Will Smith is great. And Josh Brolin, as a young Tommy Lee Jones, is phenomenal. It's like, it is really astounding how he is able to not only look like a young Tommy Lee Jones, but actually sound like a young Tommy Lee Jones without veering into parody. Um, that being said, the movie doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's a time travel movie to start off with. And basically, you have two types of time travel movies. You have the time travel uh, story or movie that is like Back to the Future, where you go back in time, you change the past, and it affects the future, and everything's, yay, better. Um, and then you have the time travel stuff like uh, The Time Traveler's Wife, which is basically, this is the way it has always happened. This is the way it always will happen. It just seems to happen a little bit out of order for some people. Um, this movie... We couldn't, we couldn't tell until the very end what kind of movie this was going to be as far as time travel goes. And it turns out to be a very bad time travel. <laughs> the third option. Um, with, I don't even... And this is going to spoil the ending, but I don't really care. Um, the movie begins with a villain, uh, a bad guy, escaping a, a prison on the moon. Um, he's played pretty... He's actually pretty great. He's played by uh, Jermaine Clement, I think his name is, from Father of the Concords. He's the big villain of the movie, and he's, he's pretty great. Um, he escapes from the moon um, and decides to go back in time to try to to kill Tommy Lee Jones as a child, not a child, but as a as a younger person, so that he doesn't get imprisoned in the moon for forty years. Um, and so that happens, and Will Smith goes back in time to stop that from happening. Um, and what happens? In the ending is so strange to me because they could have played it several different ways and they were playing around time travel in a really fun way until the end when in the past to instead of letting t- uh, time play out the way it's supposed to where they uh, they stop the guy and they put him in prison for 40 years they killed him the villain dies in the past as a young person at the end of the movie like young Tommy Lee Jones uh, liquefies him with his gun and then all of a sudden you're like, how does any of this happen then? <laughs> the whole movie is negated in the end, but it, it's presented as resolution. Will Smith goes back into the goes back into the present and finds Tommy Lee Jones alive and fine. He's like, oh good, let's go. And I'm like, no, no, this. And yet everybody seems to remember everything that happened, and you're like, no, this actually, this you can't you can't end that way because. If he died in 1969, he didn't go to prison, he didn't go back in time, none of this happened. What are you doing, you guys? And the ending is also really frustrating because there's very little resolution. There's like, do you, you kill a bad guy, he comes back into the future, but then it just ends almost abruptly with like no extra character moments. And it just it's a very strange movie where each individual scene works really well as a men in black skit if you will like this scene is fun this scene is fun but they don't really add up to anything they don't really it doesn't really go anywhere and like it was just kind of a disappointing movie overall it's like there there, it had some really interesting concepts and i think i heard 
they actually started making this movie before they had a script. And, well, that sounds like a good plan. Yeah, and you can kind of tell because there are certain scenes that feel like improv. And there are certain scenes that within the dialogue, it feels like they kind of they go back over the same idea a couple times in like three scenes in a row. And they, they, it's just like, mm, it just. The other thing is, and this is, this is kind of my own little nitpick. Um, and it, it may come from just the fact that I've been hanging out with the doctor from Doctor Who for too long. But these men and black guys are super violent. <laughs> they shoot everybody. And it seems, I mean, I don't know, like maybe, and I don't remember the old, the Men in Black 1 and 2 being this way. I know some aliens got turned into goo a couple times in the original movies. Um, especially the, the opening sequence from Men in Black 1 is an alien getting shot. And so maybe this has always been there. But like these guys' first response to meeting aliens in this in Men in Black 3 is to pull out their laser guns and just shoot them. And it just felt overly violent, like to the point of like, I might show my 10-year-old the first Men in Black movie. I don't know if I would the third one. It was kind of weird. Like It had a, a slightly darker tone overall. And not just because the stakes were dark, but just because, like, these two guys, they don't, they're not nice people anymore. They're funny. I still like them, but I don't know. Men in Black 3 was a little disappointing. I kind of walked out and was like, oh. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um speaking uh, I'm gonna I, what have you seen I'll come back to some other stuff <laughs> I gotta sort out my thoughts yeah fair enough um well I've seen a couple of movies here recently uh Jeff who lives at home um I've been very interested in seeing it and ultimately ultimately I'm not entirely sure where I come down on this movie um I I think uh I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. It's it's kind of these these two brothers um, end up having a day together, but they kind of hate each other mm-hmm. and love each other at the same time, which is kind of how brothers sometimes can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, I think they ultimately hate each other more than they like each other. Um, and it all kind of stems back from um, a whole bunch of childhood trauma and they kind of have this day where their where their paths keep inter- intersecting as they both kind of have like the worst and best day they've ever had at the same time right and it kind of helps get their lives maybe kind of resolved somehow um it's it's a really interesting kind of story because it's completely implausible Mm-hmm. While at the same time being very fascinating to see how they how the story kind of takes these paths and keeps crossing them. Yeah, a um, friend of mine at work said kind of the same thing. And uh, you know, at the end of, of the day, it's actually a pretty rewarding um, kind of story. Uh, as as long as you're kind of willing to go on this journey with them, it's it's kind of a dark story. There's um, you know a lot of really dark themes and and you know language and, and that kind of thing for people who are against that sort of thing um, you know so it's not going to be a movie for everyone um, but I, I would say it's definitely worth a watch um, I don't know I don't I don't have a, a solid like okay. definitive like it's rated 82 on my skin you know I don't have <laughs> I don't have like a number kind of thing right yeah. for that I, I have very mixed feelings about it because there's a lot of stuff I liked about it I thought it let um, 
the actors uh, go a little bit further than maybe we've seen from them in some ways. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I'm not sure that the people who were in it were necessarily the strongest choices of actors to maybe play these roles. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of a mixed piece for me, but at the end of the day, I think, I think it's worth watching. Cool. It's kind of where I come down on it. Um, Cool. This this what's interesting about this is the movie I'm going to talk about next um, is kind of almost in response to seeing Men in Black Three, which is like this big, very expensive movie that was a financial risk, and I think it paid off for the studio. I think I think Men in Black Three did all right. So a very small movie that I think was only released like on four screens called Being Flynn, um, which stars uh, Robert De Niro and um, oh, what's the kid's name? Paul Dano from uh, There Will Be Blood and uh, Little Miss Sunshine. It's based on the book, pardon my language, but it's based on the book called Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, um, which is a memoir, true story about this young man who's a kind of a struggling writer. He doesn't really want to admit the fact that he's a writer because he's never actually written anything and he has a hard time. So immediately I am hooked. <laughs> um, and uh, he, he has a dad who also is a writer who hasn't really written anything, but is always working on something that is classic. This is going to be the big, my, my big book. Um, and it's a really interesting movie that kind of explores the love hate relationship between a father and a son and the, how much of this, how much of a father's legacy do you inherit both the good and the bad and the, the tangible, you know? Um, it takes some really dark and interesting turns because basically Robert De Niro, which is maybe the best Robert De Niro movie I've seen in a very long time. He's, he's really great in this movie. He really reminds you of uh, young Robert De Niro. You know, not this isn't uh, meet, meet the Fockers or something like that. This is like Robert De Niro really kind of showing up and doing something great. Um, he's this down on his luck guy who's his own worst enemy. He's an alcoholic. He gets kicked out of an, one apartment gets kicked out of another and ends up living on the street which his son doesn't realize until his father shows up at the homeless shelter that he's working at um he just shows up for a room one night and all of a sudden he realizes how bad his dad actually has it right now they haven't really talked or had a relationship like in 18 years and so that's kind of the setting of the movie and so it, it's it's a very it's a very kind of dark and sad and subtle movie that is kind of wonderful. I really enjoyed it. It was a it's a very small film, but it's a very kind of character driven film, and so it doesn't necessarily have a really strict like plot line structure where it's like ah here's the setup you know how it's going to pay off. You really don't know where this is going to head, and it ends in a really kind of nice uh, way. It's directed by Paul Weitz, who you might know from About a Boy. He also directed that, and so it kind of has that same kind of feeling. It's a movie set in boston in the streets that you don't often see you know it's not a very pretty movie though it's shot wonderfully you know it's um being flynn it's definitely worth i think uh your time to check it out it's a small kind of funny sometimes but overall it's basically just a drama that is excellent Mm. the kind of movie i would like to see more of especially when you compare this to like a man of black three um and you're gonna go look at the look at the relative budgets of these two. You have you know you paid up front for two or three really solid actors, no special effects, no anything, just a solid script. And over here, you clearly paid all your money to Will Smith and that one really cool special effects sequence. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, interesting. I, I definitely add that to my Netflix list. Yeah, being Flint. Very cool. Um, the other movie that I've seen here recently that I really thoroughly enjoyed um, is a movie called Exporting Raymond. Um, it's a documentary. Um, and the basic premise um, is that when when the show um, Everybody Loves Raymond finished here in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, apparently they decided to go and try to launch it in Russia. Oh, I heard about this. Yes. Um, apparently, after uh, after The Nanny, if for those of you who remember The Nanny, um, The Nanny was a huge international success. It was Russia's first sitcom that they ever had, apparently. Hmm. And um, basically, The Nanny started this whole new trend of taking American shows and taking them to other countries mm-hmm. and bringing in, you know, a new cast, rewriting the scripts to fit that country. Interesting. And uh, so the nanny blew up and, and was this huge international I success. I didn't realize we did that. I knew we, we've tried to do that, bring them to America. I didn't realize uh-huh. we exported yeah. these. And this movie is about this process for Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> and, oh my goodness, is it hilarious. Um, because part of the deal with Everybody Loves Raymond is that it's about this American family yeah. that is dealing with American family issues and just kind of the absurdity of, you know, kind of this nuclear family life of America and just kind of all the weirdness of that. And so trying to translate that into Russian, it's, you know, it's not a hyper-realistic kind of thing like the nanny, which is, you know, almost cartoonish or something. Right. You know, this is something that there is a basis in reality to. And so you have to, you have to really bridge those cultural divides yeah. to get it to work in a different language. And then, again, not only do you have to bridge that, but you also have to bridge, you know, the fact that, um, you know, the television industry as such barely exists in Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who work on these shows also may work on two or three other shows. Like the writers may be the writers on three different shows at the same oh, time. Wow. And so they don't really have the time yeah. or the energy or the, you know, to, to fully try to comprehend things. Um, you know, there's kind of this concept of, you know, the things that have worked in Russian television mm-hmm. have been kind of these more, um, you know, larger than life characters and things, and so doing something grounded in reality is maybe not going to work. So everybody fights against these basic <laughs> concepts. Um, you also have, uh, you know, executives who you know work for the studio there in Russia, mm-hmm. who are trying to flex their muscle a little bit and go, you know what you're not in America now and we get to call the shots here. Yeah. Um, you know, the studio system is the same no matter where you are, apparently. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they want to prove that they're the ones in charge, not their bosses back in New York or LA mm-hmm. or wherever. And um, it is it is hilarious. It's, while at the same time having some really fascinating human truths and... Um, yeah, I I loved every second of the movie. Is it, it on was, Netflix? Uh, it's not on streaming, but it's it is. You can get the DVD from Netflix. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure where else it may or may not be available. But if I find, you know, if it happens to be on streaming anywhere else, we'll we'll put that up on our uh, website as well. That sounds phenomenal. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. 
Um, um, yeah, it's it's one of the better one of the better movies I have seen recently, and and I thoroughly 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 enjoyed it. Cool. Um, I'll touch on two more things real quick, and then we'll get into Vertigo. Uh, one is the HBO movie Game Change, which is one of the reasons why Kelly and I were uh, super excited to get HBO. Oh, follow up. Uh, for those of you who have been listening to us, uh, we figured out our HBO situation. Apparently, our uh, broadcasting provider uh, hadn't actually read the entire uh, document I had sent them saying, I want HBO. And so we were not signed up for HBO. And so now we can record HBO. So, yay. Uh, anyway, so one of the first things we watched was Game Change, which is the movie about the uh, Sarah Palin uh, McCain political ticket of 2008 um we kind of went into it kind of really expecting it to be a a harsh condemnation of this whole process because well it's an hbo movie and we kind of expect that from our liberal media um <laughs> uh, <laughs> turns out we were it turned out to be a much i feel fair portrayal of the whole situation mccain definitely comes off as a very as a very sympathetic character which is kind of funny to say um because he's a real person i've always liked john mccain um and i won't get into politics right now but it's kind of hard not to with this with this movie but i liked him and this movie kind of makes you continue to like him he seems like a very honorable person who tried to run the best campaign that he could what's interesting to me though is that uh sarah palin if this feels like if this is either the harshest criticism I've ever seen of Sarah Palin, or it's completely accurate, which is also which is then it turns it into a terrifying movie um, because of the some of the scenes that they show of her just not knowing things, and it's based on a book written by a couple people who worked on um, a couple staffers from that campaign. So I feel like this is probably pretty much what happened. Um, that being said, I'm sure there's a lot of people who this movie could and will make very angry if they sit through it. Cause I know some people who really liked, um, Sarah Palin and continue to, um, Julianne Moore plays Sarah Palin and she's fantastic. Like you kind of forget, like when you first see her, you're kind of looking at her going, Oh, I see how they turned her into Sarah Palin. But 20 minutes further into the movie, you've completely forgotten that, um, you know, this is an actress. You really kind of, you start watching it as this is Sarah Palin doing things. This is kind of crazy. This is kind of scary. This is kind of sad. Um, the, the couple of things that kind of stood out to me though, as especially in the wrap up of it, I'd be, I'd be very curious for someone to watch this like in 20 years, because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure how much, how strong of a movie it is. If you don't know, if you don't bring your own knowledge of the 2008 election to it, I, because Kelly and I were watching it, and we were remembering all the things. We were remembering the Saturday Night Live skits. We were remembering all of this stuff. And so I'd be very curious if someone who didn't know the process, who didn't know who these people were, if they would be able to enjoy it as much as we did. I think it's a strong movie. I, I enjoyed it. But I kind of went, I wonder if this will be, have any relevance to anybody, even in 20 years. Um, it did kind of, for that, it did seem like a strange movie to make because to a certain extent, it feels like everything that has needed to be said has been said on the subject that being said it's also kind of like hbo did a movie a couple years ago called recount about the election in 2004 where florida with the whole florida hanging chad situation 2000 was 2000. i don't know 2000 they that movie was also very fantastic and phenomenal and 
that movie to me still stands up and is still very interesting. But it kind of it, it's it's made with that same kind of care for detail, that same kind of um, you know attention to the actual story, and so. I really enjoyed it. Woody Harrelson's in it and is great. It's a really great script, really great cast. Um, it doesn't shine the best light on Sarah Palin. So if you think that might make you a little bit upset, uh, I might steer clear of it. You know, everybody else who can kind of approach it with an open mind or for those people who want a good lampooning of her, I don't know if this is that. Um, but this does kind of show the movies. I would definitely say the movie comes from his perspective that she shouldn't be as, she should be as far away from the white house as possible. Um, so take that for what you will. We Kelly and I did enjoy the movie overall, though. Um, last thing I want to touch on is a video game that I just finished playing called Spec Ops: The Line. Um, when I first heard about this game, I wasn't super excited about it because I've kind of been burnt out on all the Call of Duty and Modern Warfare games, and I guess that Call of Duty and Modern Warfare are the same. It's uh, Call of Duty and Medal of Honor. Those two, those two franchises have kind of I'm just kind of done with them. Um, I haven't played Modern Warfare 3. I'm just, I kind of get it, you know. Uh, First-person shooters against <laughs> people who we're fighting right now doesn't seem the best thing. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I kept seeing the trailers and the commercials for this while we were watching Hulu and on TV and on on uh, different websites I was visiting. So I was like, I will give this a try. What they don't tell you in those commercials is that this video game is actually an adaptation of the book uh, Heart of Darkness, uh, which I recognized almost immediately and from the opening narration. And as the story was being set up, I went, this sounds a lot like Heart of Darkness. And the movie that was uh, adapted from that, um, Apocalypse Now. And so in this game, they take, you know, Heart of Darkness was about Africa and the colonialization that took place there. Uh, Scorsese? No. Uh, Coppola. Coppola. Yes. <laughs> I know this. <laughs> I know movies. Uh, Coppola took it and it's kind of set it in the Viet- in Vietnam. This takes it into kind of a modern day setting in Dubai where this really terrible sandstorm has buried half the city in sand. And so there's been like this attempt, like a man, uh, Colonel Conrad, was sent into Dubai to try to get whatever survivors were still there out of the city. He has gone missing. And so now you're going in... Um, to try to find him and get everybody out. And what was really fascinating about this game, it's something that the recent Call of Duty games have tried to do, and I think they've done it very unsuccessfully, Um, but this game actually pulled it off, which is setting up this morally, the morally gray ambiguousness of war, um, where you're fighting people that you're not convinced you're supposed to be fighting, but you're doing this to survive, and you're helping protect the people beside you. Yet, you're making decisions that you know are actually ending other people's lives, and maybe that's not good. Um, and as the story progresses, it becomes more and more conflicted, and more and more like it, it really takes a really dark turn about halfway through the game. And what's interesting to me is that the whole gameplay not the not the gameplay necessarily, but the game itself changes because when you first start the game, you you have these three kind of buddies going in, and you're you're making wisecracks to each other, and you kind of go, okay, this is going to be kind of a fun game. Halfway through the as as you fight more people and as you experience more parts of the story the relationship changes inside the gameplay. So 
when you when you first you're playing like you might like laugh at each other or tease each other by the end it is nothing but you're just like your your character is yelling at e- you're yelling at each other even while you're just playing not even in the cutscenes you're yelling and you're swearing and everything is just it is intense and it's the the game ends in a real it has probably three or four possible endings and i played through the ending sequence a couple times so i could get all the different endings um i really enjoyed it it was it's not a game if you have children in the house i would not play it with them because the language goes very r very quickly and there is a proliferation of it especially later in the game where your characters are have been pushed to the brink and they're just everything is you know very 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 r um I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I was expecting. Um, it's a third-person kind of a shooter. Um, it's not a first-person shooter. Um, really, really well-crafted game that has a very strong story. And, I'm, and I think this might be the first time I've played a video game that's an adaptation of a book, just you know, straight from book to video game. And I think that's pretty cool. And I would honestly recommend it to people out there who um, enjoy Apocalypse Now, the movie, and are looking for a video game <laughs> based on a similar story or who can kind of handle that kind of the the bloody rawness of war. There's some very unpleasant imagery in this game. And it has it. I don't, I'm not going to spoil anything because I enjoyed every minute of it. But if you remember some of the twists and turns the Bioshock game had, this has some similar stuff going on in it where all of a sudden your, your perspective sometimes shifts and you start thinking about other things. And it's, it's cool. Not very many games pull it off. And I think this game kind of does, and I think it asks some very legitimate questions about war while putting you in the thick of it, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So, Spec Ops The Line. I think it's available for the 360, the PS3, and the computer, but I'm not entirely sure. I know it's available for the 360 and PS3. Okay. Yeah, also computer. Cool. Yep. Looked it up already. Cool. <laughs> so, um, that done, is there anything else you want to... No, I think you know. I think we are at the point where we need to talk about uh, the the reason we, everyone is here today: uh, the nineteen fifty eight Alfred Hitchcock classic Vertigo. Yep, number um, nine on the AFI. As as we record, this is number nine, um, which yep. is interesting to me because the BFI recently put it at number one, which is actually why we're here um, so soon. Because you know, uh, last. Last time on the podcast, we covered uh, Citizen Kane, which is, you know, for for years and years and years, has been ranked... Like you the know, 60s. Yeah, you know, on pretty much all of these top sorts of lists as, like, the number one movie of all time. Mm-hmm. And so we were really curious. You know, it's finally been on one of these lists. It has finally been eradicated by Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Um, so we thought it would be interesting to jump into this next. Um, so before we kind of maybe get into a comparison, which is, you know, something we will definitely do, uh, you know, I think we need to approach the movie on its own terms before Absolutely. we start com- comparing things. Let's so. just look at Vertigo right now. Yeah. So, uh, Vertigo. Uh, Scott, what is, tell us a little bit about the movie, maybe, and then... Yeah, Vertigo. Um, okay, I'm going to... Full disclosure, before we get into this, this was the first time I've actually seen Vertigo. I've seen uh, far too few Alfred Hitchcock movies. I've seen a fair share, but I still there's a, still a lot I have missed, and this was one of them. So, I was very excited to see this. So, uh, from my perspective, as I get into this, it is coming from a person who's only seen it once and hasn't been able to view it multiple times. Um this movie stars Jimmy Stewart as our in our lead as the lead character as uh, Johnny or John Scotty Ferguson, who is a uh, who was a police officer for the first three minutes of the film. After a kind of a very bad situation, 
on a rooftop where one of his friends dies, a fellow police officer dies in a pursuit of a criminal. Um, he gets, what's it called, agoraphobia? Yeah, uh, basically fear of heights. Fear of heights, yeah, and he experiences vertigo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Severe vertigo. Severe vertigo. And then the movie kind of picks up uh, about a year later or some months later um, where he's about to be, he's about to get his brace off because he hurt his back during that situation. And so um, he's going to get his brace off and now he's kind of become something of a private investigator. And a man comes and inv- asks him to investigate his wife. He's like, no, no, no. Not to invent, she's not doing anything bad. She's not cheating on anybody. It's not that kind of a thing. She thinks she is being possessed by the spirit of this 17th, 18th century woman. And it's leading her to some very bad places and it's making her do things I don't like. Could you please follow her, make sure she's okay? Stuff like that. That's the setup of the movie. Um, that's the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes of the film. And then the movie kind of progresses from there through this investigation as he starts to follow her. Um, again, this is also a podcast where we analyze films, so we're going to veer into uh, some kind of spoiler territory. The movie's 40, 50 years old, so... Yeah, 1958, guys. So yeah. if you haven't seen it, you know, turn off the podcast, go watch it, and yeah. come back. But otherwise, we're going to assume that you've had plenty of time at this point. Yeah, so then uh, as, the, as the story progresses, the two of them kind of... They fall for each other. And then... Um, We'll, we'll cover the ending of the of the movie later as we get into the anal- analyzing it. But I mean, it really is this relationship between this private investigator and this woman played by Kim Novak, who he is uh, kind of tailing and mm-hmm. trying to you know learn more about her, try to protect her, try to you know, yeah, yeah. And it's it's a very interesting movie because um, you know, nineteen fifty eight. You're still right in the middle of, of the Hayes Code, you know, the production code, um, which is kind of this whole thing of of censoring movies and keeping you know salacious material out of them uh, you know whatever that may or may not entail and uh which is very interesting because this is a movie that is entirely about salacious material basically (laughs) it really is i wasn't expecting that Mm -hmm. um you know it's, it's starting with um starting with you know when he really starts tailing this this girl you know uh very quickly there's kind of this weird line almost that is crossed where it it gets like where it goes almost from like private investigator to like creepy stalker yeah um you kind of ease it kind of eases into that a little bit but i mean it definitely goes full-blown creepy stalker in the last 30 minutes of the film yeah um but yeah i mean that's that's kind of this progression of this whole thing like he gets sucked into this dark underworld and almost by his own admission, because like she's not doing anything salacious, mm-hmm. he just becomes obsessed with her. Yeah, obsession is maybe the best word to describe this movie. It really yeah. is about, you know, he starts out with maybe the best intentions and ultimately just becomes obsessed by her and her story and her, you know, what may or may not be going on with her. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's from that aspect you know it's actually a very powerful performance from jimmy stewart because it's entirely believable the way that he gets sucked into this world basically um and uh yeah it's you know it's because of that there is all sorts of you know sexual tension and kind of these weird um man uh, uh, like the last 30 or 40 minutes of the movie um he goes from yeah he goes from like a a character you you kind of really like to being a a full-blown creep just yeah. like a oh okay this is this is sad and scary now this isn't just a investigative story anymore 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets into like this, you know, I would say into a really weird realm of almost like fetishism and stuff. Yeah. Which is, you know, this is all very uh, pretty heavy stuff for the late 50s to be dealing with in a movie um yeah. which which is part i think that uh, that is part of the the genius of what what hitchcock brought to this is he was you know he was someone who knew how to work a movie and be able to say what he wanted to say despite yeah and what's the restrictions placed on him yeah and i, I said I, I think we should just go ahead and get into all of that stuff too yeah i i thought we would I said a second ago, I know that we would, we would wait, but basically what we kind of learn in this movie is that, um, it's a bit, it's a bit complex. Actually, the story is not nearly as straightforward as you think it is at the beginning. What we find out, because as he's tailing her, um, she's starting to act very erratically and she tries to commit suicide at one point. And we find out it's because she is the same age as this woman she thinks she is possessed by. And so that means she's probably going to try to die at the same age again if she, you know, if she think if she is possessed by this person or if um, she thinks she's that person. Either way, she might die very soon. It kind of comes to a to a bit of a climax about halfway through the movie where they go to this old Spanish mission and she throws herself off the out of the bell tower, and mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart kind of spirals into this uh, wild depression. And he's admitted to a, a psych ward, more or less, a place to try to get better. Um, he starts to get better, and he get he, he's released, and then he and see- then he starts seeing her everywhere. He starts seeing her everywhere, and at first you just go, oh, that that poor guy, you know, he he can't get her out of his head because when it when it first happened, it's done really well the way Hitchcock shot it, where it's like he sees somebody, he's like, is that her? And then, like, she walks out of the shadow, and it's like, oh, no, it's not her, it's just somebody. Oh, is that her? You know, it's like he does these really clever uh, edits and camera tricks to kind of make you think that he's seeing her, and he's really not. But then he sees somebody, and as, as Kelly and I were watching it, I'm like, I think that's the same actress, actually, who's played uh, Madeline at the beginning of this movie. And I looked it up on IMDb, and it was the same actress. And it turns out it's the same actress, because it's the same actress. It turns out that she was hired by this man um, to per- to play his wife because he looks, she looks so much like his wife that she would pretend to be this woman who thought, who thought she was possessed. Who's basically played this woman who's slightly going crazy, draw, you know, uh, Ferguson, Scotty into this story, basically to legitimize her craziness. So and that her suicide and her suicide, which turns out not to be a suicide, which turns out to be actually the husband threw her out of the bell tower mm-hmm. in the moment. Um, and so... But not her. It turned out it was the real wife. Real wife. threw out. He had, and and he had already maybe broken her neck, so she was already dead at that moment, but then mm-hmm. he threw her out. But it looked like she was... She she died there. So there's it's, it's all this kind of big convoluted story to just to kill his wife so that he could move on with life and inherit the money she had and... Mm-hmm. Basically, escaped to Europe. Yeah, basically to frame Scotty for it in a way that wouldn't actually, yeah, you know, like, get him jailed. Right. Basically. They basically said we knew it would be okay because you have, um, because you, have you ex- because you experience yeah. vertigo, you wouldn't be able to follow me all the way up into the bell tower, be there fast enough. We were able to throw her out, and but the the twist, of course, is that they the two of them have legitimately fallen in love with each other. Um, the problem is now, though, he has become completely uh, obsessed and fascinated with the woman she was playing, uh, Madeline Elster. And so he ends up kind of making her 
dress like her, talk like her, dye her hair like her. And it isn't until like the last five minutes of the film that he becomes aware, which is interesting because the way Hitchcock structured it, the audience finds out about halfway through the film what's going on. We go, oh, she's an actress who played, you know, we find out the whole story and then we spend another about 30, 40 minutes basically waiting for Jimmy Stewart to figure it out and, you know, wondering where this story is going to end up. Will he find out? How will he, how will he react? And um, he reacts very poorly, (laughs) you know, when he, when he does kind of figure it out and the movie ends and a kind of strange reminiscent way that it began with someone falling off the bell tower. And it's, you know, it's her this time. She gets scared and um, she falls out, she falls out and dies. So he ends up losing the love of his life in the same way twice. Um, it ends with him on the rooftop in the same way the movie began with him on a rooftop and um, ends kind of abruptly just with him staring down. We don't actually mm-hmm. see her body. Um, we just, we know she fell out because we kind of see her go through the window and it kind of a sad movie and it kind of, you know, interesting. I don't know. I mean, that that's, that, I mean, that's the whole movie and it gets into a lot of really dark and interesting character explorations yeah it's for me i think the thing especially watching it for the first time this is my second or third time through the movie um but i think uh, i think you you were saying to me earlier scott Mm -hmm. you know watching it and even for me because it's been just long enough that i didn't remember exactly what happened um you know hitchcock was very good at making these movies where you don't quite know what's going to happen next um i think that is one of the strongest points of this movie it it has it has a very slow sort of pacing to it Mm -hmm. and so you never quite know you know there's uh, to me i think that the best scene that does this in the movie i'm not the best I, i think it does it several times but there's a scene that really epitomizes this is when he's tailing her and she stops in in like this alleyway and she goes into this random doorway that looks kind of creepy. Yeah. And he follows her in, and it's all dark and creepy. And you, you're, you know, honestly, I'm expecting like anything to happen in there. You know, someone's yeah. going to try to kill him, or you know, some something creepy and crazy is going to happen in this moment. Yeah. And then he opens the door, and it turns out he's in the back room of a flower shop, and she's in the flower <laughs> shop like buying flowers. Yeah. And so it turned this whole sequence that you thought was going one direction into this whole other thing. Yeah. And yet somehow those flowers later on turn out to be really creepy on their own. And so there's kind of this this sort of thing that Hitchcock does with it where he keeps you guessing the whole mm-hmm. time in a way that it, it even today I would say it still feels really fresh because I don't think people mm-hmm. I don't think directors or writers in movies keep you guessing in the ways that Hitchcock did like that. Oh, I think uh, it's a very specific sort of style. Absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think most people kind of subscribe to that Robert McKee style of writing, which is, you know, set up, set up, set up, pay off, pay off, pay off, you mm-hmm. know? And, uh, he does that. I mean, there's definitely setups and payoffs, but it's just, you don't know what's set up until mm-hmm. you see the payoff later. And so you end up going on a very interesting character journey. You just don't know. I mean, this, it's the same. I, I compared it earlier to psycho, um, in that, when I the first time I saw Psycho, I was kind of flummoxed because everything I knew about the movie took place in the first twenty minutes. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, then what is this movie if it's not about? Okay, <laughs> you know, and about halfway through the movie, there's a lot of moments where it's like you see a scene and it fades to black, and it goes to a new scene, then it fades to black, and it goes to a new scene. You're like, 
where is this movie going? It could have ended three or four different ways already. And it's not a complaint. Like sometimes some movies, people complain about having too many endings. This is just a story that needs to be told. And it, you don't quite know where that story is ever going to quite go. Like when, mm-hmm. when we see the woman die the first time, I thought it was going to end there. And I was like, wow, this was a short movie. You know, it's about 45 minutes in when she, when the, the wife dies. Um, I kind of was like, what, 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 what happens now? He, he kind of failed at that. And that's the other thing. The whole movie that I knew going into it was it's a movie about Vertigo, which mm-hmm. which does play an important role in his in the character, but it's not at all the movie I was expecting it to be. Mm-hmm. Like So like, when he experiences Vertigo for the first time, and then the scene following that is basically him talking to his friend, basically saying i think what i need to do to get over vertigo is to shock my senses once more i need to put myself in another situation where i'll experience vertigo and so you kind of see him slowly kind of standing on slightly taller things i kind of thought that's what this movie was going to be was basically somebody trying to get over vertigo and putting himself into these different different situations where he's just always just a little bit higher off the ground Mm -hmm. i thought it was going to be scary for different reasons than it turned out to be interestingly Yes, I don't disagree, but I think there's an interesting thing set up in that scene that you can also kind of argue with this movie is that part of his part of his fear of of heights or falling, I think, is is really the thing. It's this, it's this concept of falling that I think really yeah. scares him. Um, in that same scene where he's saying that he needs to overcome, you know, uh, overcome that um, by building his tolerance. Um, I think that that also directly ties into this concept of obsession and love that we have in this movie, in that I think that there's this this very real sense of him falling into this relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's very deliberate in this movie, so, is that, yeah. he's, is that in, a, in a weird way... The concept of this vertigo and and of of you know the, uh, the being scared of falling directly parallels his journey into this relationship. I read and so an article I think that I, where somebody pointed out that you see him driving a lot, and he's in San Francisco, and you never see him driving up hills. You only ever see him driving down hills, just to mm-hmm. further the the concept of him always falling, always going mm-hmm. down. I mean, you, you see lots of flat travel, too, but you never actually see him going up anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it's... I think the the title of the movie is very much a metaphor for his character arc. Um, you know, he definitely falls into the madness of this of this story, I think. Um, and... And so, not only does he have to overcome his his actual fear of falling, but it's you know kind of this concept of overcoming his, some of his emotional and uh, you know baggage and, and things that he has brought with him up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's actually a very complex sort of character sort of movie. Yeah, um, a lot more so than I was expecting. And and it's interesting because it's not at all your typical character arc for a hero character. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it is, but it, especially for the time, it, you know, it very much breaks the bounds of, of what a character does. You know, mm-hmm. you don't normally send your, your character into a complete mental breakdown, you know, right. a, a two-thirds of the way through a movie or no, I, I or think and the fact that he's a private investigator, I think that image that you get usually is a, of a slightly broken man, but mm-hmm. one that's generally trying to do a good thing. And while you could kind of say that about his character, you're not feeling that for the last 30 minutes of the film. You're like, this guy is a creepazoid who she needs to run far, far away from. Mm-hmm. Even though, yes, she did fall in love, this man is wackadoo. Yeah. Run. Sorry, I'm making up words now. 
apparently Scott has also come back from the 50s <laughs> I like with his wackadoo <laughs> lifestyle. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's very interesting. And again, I think that's, for me, that is where the most interesting parallel mm-hmm. or um, comparison to Citizen Kane kind of comes from. And I don't, I don't want to get into Citizen Kane just yet, because there's one more thing about Vertigo I want to talk about. But to me, that was the, the most interesting parallel was how kind of even how deep and um resident of a character um kane was you know where he was somebody who had a lot of things going on underneath that you don't quite see until the end and you don't understand it till the end to me that was where the, these two movies kind of touch was like oh it's i can see where these two characters could be kind of put into the same kind of a film comparison mm-hmm. um but going into this movie the one thing that i really knew about it and the part i was the most interested to see was the vertigo shot Right, um, which yeah. every filmmaker or film student kind of knows and loves, I think. Um, which is you've probably seen it. For those of you who maybe aren't un- or are unfamiliar with this concept, you've probably seen it in a lot of TV shows and movies at this point. It's kind of it's almost being been used to the point of lampooning, um, where basically it looks like the the foreground looks like it's being pulled away from the the main character or looks like it's getting smashed into the back of the character a lot of times they use it when the person's perspective on life completely changes or they'll like they use it really great in goodfellas i know we talked about it in our goodfellas podcast um but it's a camera move and technique that was invented by the dp was it the dp for this film I believe so. Uh, I have it written down. I know his name. I don't remember the position he actually held in the film. Uh, but it was uh, invented by Ermin Roberts. And it's it's sometimes called the trombone shot or the stretch shot or the Hitchcock zoom. I always call it the, a vertigo shot. Um, basically what happens is there's two ways to do it. And the effect is slightly different depending on uh, what you do. You, it's basically where they have the camera on a... Uh, on a dolly track and they're pushing the camera towards the subject but while they're doing that they're using the zoom on the on the lens to uh, zoom out away f- you know to make the picture bigger and so you have this really weird thing where you the camera is simultaneously moving closer and pulling away from the character or you can do it you know in reverse and it was invented for this movie to kind of give this vertigo shot and it's very compelling and it's used to great effect in this film uh it's used two or three times it's like only two shots that they actually filmed but that shot is recycled where one is looking down an alleyway where he's hanging off the gutter for the first time and the alley the walls seem to stretch and it's it really does capture a feeling of vertigo, which and which needed to happen in that moment, because mm-hmm. if you had just put the camera over the edge and looked down, it would have just been looking down. You wouldn't have had that feeling. But when you see it looking down the alley, I thought it was, and looking down the stairwell in the in the mission, um, it gives you that feeling that you get when you look over the edge of a tall building. And you go, God, you kind of get that gut feeling of like I'm too high, I'm too close to the edge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very very effective in this film. Um, yeah, it's you know I I think that's one of the things. Um, this is not a, a visual effects film in nearly the way that Citizen Kane is, um, but you know it definitely does make use of camera trickery in several areas. You know, um, either I mean starting with with Saul Bass's uh, opening credits. I love that. You know, which are you know for anyone who doesn't know, Saul, Saul Bass kind of reinvented what the opening credit sequence could be for films. And people are still and, going back to Saul Bass. And yeah, it's really great. Yeah, I mean this is this is one of the classic opening title sequences of all time, um, 
And, you know, so there's, you know, all kinds of optical printing things and stuff there to, uh, you know... How did... What is that? Because... Optical printing? No, no, maybe. Because Kelly and I were watching the movie and we don't... Like, was that... Is that an animation style? Is that a sequence? Because, like, it it starts... The the opening sequence begins with this kind of central, almost, uh, shots of Kim Novak's face really close up. But then, like, this thing spirals out of her eye... And we go into it, like, yeah, is it, op- you said it's optical printing. What exactly is that? Uh, basically, optical printing would be um, where you would do um, it kind of in a uh, special laboratory kind of setting or, you know, special equipment sort of setting. Uh, you would take a camera and you could do multiple exposures onto the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of the same way that they would do any any sort of title effect um, right. back in the day. You know, they didn't. You know, uh, you would have your titles, and they would need to get on the film over the picture somehow. Right. And so you would have to do kind of a double exposure of your of your negative to get um, to get those both in the same place at the same time. You know, it's one thing if you're just doing title cards, but if you're doing, you know. Yeah. words over, over picture so then what those really cool designs and you guys probably have seen this by now because this is kind of the the title sequence everybody knows once you get past kim novak's face are these really cool kind of spiraling designs are those just like i'm i'm sure it's a, a type of animation i don't okay I, honestly i haven't gone through to figure out how he made this okay sequence, sorry but didn't mean to uh-huh. really but it was, like, it was like this moment that we, we both kind of watch it and it was it's really pretty fantastic and very 19 uh, 1950s, 1960s kind of looking kind of sequence that we just were not entirely sure how it was done. Yeah, um, I'm I'm sure it was it was animation of some sort. Okay, um, and which uh, you know again when you think about it, that's a pretty impressive sort of feat. To yeah. I mean, it's very complex sort of animation. Mm-hmm. If it is animation, yeah. I would assume it is. Um, and you know, it's it's just very. It's a very clearly thought through concept that really ties in and and really gets you into the frame of mind of what this movie is going to be mm-hmm. about. Absolutely, um, I, there's this great website called Art of the Title that I like to go to, where they kind of examine title sequences from movies and TV shows, and they actually have an article looking at the title sequence of Vertigo. So I'll I'll link to it, but it's a great website just to frequent anyway. They recently had an exploration of the of the Domino. Um, title sequence, mm. which is pretty great. Anyway, you were talking about special effects and camera work, and I derailed you, so continue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, it kind of continues throughout this movie. There's, you know, matte paintings, mm-hmm. uh, there are, um, you know, obviously the, the, the camera vertigo effect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, so uh, Hitchcock was someone who very much would use technology to further his story, um, but it was it was all in use of, you know, furthering this what he was trying to say. It wasn't necessarily, um, it, it wasn't a showing off sort of movie. No. It wasn't like a, he was, look at our big explosions that we put in or anything. It was, you know, he was a this- very visual director. His early mm-hmm. films were actually silent films. And so he understood how to tell a story without the use or the need for words. And you see that in, you know, even in movies like this that are, that, that are full of dialogue, he knows how to frame a shot or how to show a, show you something and he knows how to make you look where he needs you to look and see what he needs you to see yeah, without yeah. anything super flashy. And, yeah, he does that, you know, in many ways, whether it's, you know, 
if he if he does need to use an effect of some sort, he absolutely will. Mm-hmm. You know, but he might also just do it with really interesting lighting, exactly. and color. Um, you know, color is is big in this film. There's you know these moments. There's a, a moment in the, in the restaurant where uh, Kim Novak walks by and stops in front of this red wall, and the wall actually gets even more red yeah. as she's there in front of it. It's just it's kind of this moment where uh, I think that's kind of the moment where Jimmy Stewart really starts falling in love with her. Absolutely, he, it's, it's, he sees her and just goes like, oh. Look yeah. at her, you know. Yeah, you know, and and it's interesting because it, I mean, it's just an amazing shot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, no, no matter your time or place, I mean, it is an iconic, beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and, and there's several times like that. There's you know, kind of flipping that on its end. There's kind of a a moment where she's um, you know. Uh, silhouetted in green and the rest of oh, her is, is in that. black against this you know window and I mean it's kind of the inverse of, of that previous shot absolutely it's and, red and green <laughs> yeah and <laughs> even it's, the color selection yeah uh, and it's uh, you know he uses these colors to really kind of change what's going on in the story and, and where people are mentally and 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 just to enhance the characters and so color is a huge thing in this movie it's you know it's very much um yeah color goes into the costume designs as well which is really interesting the dvd that i got had a really cool uh kind of behind the scenes i think it was an amc produced documentary about the making of vertigo and they talked about um uh edna is it edna mode is that her? edith head edith head sorry i'm thinking of the girl from uh the incredibles who was based on her <laughs> <laughs> My brain might be a little broken. I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, talking about costume design and that, like how Alfred Hitchcock wanted to put her in gray and mm-hmm. that, how that was just so weird because gray, according to these people and Kelly, who know clothes better than I do, um, gray is not a blonde's color. It's like it is that is not a good color necessary to put a blonde in because it doesn't really show them off in the way that they might prefer. But it's disconcerting. And when you see her in her gray outfit, she seems different. She seems odd. She seems pale or on the brink of death somehow. Even though she looks completely healthy and completely, you know, composed, mm-hmm. there's something very weird about seeing her in this gray suit at first. And as the movie progresses, she puts on other clothes that, and it's cool. Like, and some of these other clothes, they show her off better as far as you know, complementing her coloring and her hair or whatever. It's just like, mm-hmm. but that first couple times we see her, she's wearing gray and. Like, the best thing she wears is, like, that green dress. In that scene where she's up against the red wall, you go, she is gorgeous. Who is this? You know, it, it kind of takes your breath away. And then she starts to disturb you. And then when it, when, he, when you start uh, spiraling into Jimmy Stewart's uh, melancholia, as they call it in the film, um, the first thing he does is try to put her back in that gray dress. And when you see her, it's wrong. There's something very mm-hmm. wrong about seeing her in that gray dress again. And it's very cool. Yeah. it's uh, It's a very... A very interesting movie um from you know very well thought through it's uh, getting into comparing it to citizen yeah Kane, let's i think this is a good place to jump into that um for me this is kind of i i, I think for me this is this is kind of the opposite reason for liking a movie than citizen kane um to me citizen kane is kind of this moment in time that's kind of the culmination of filmmaking up to that point you know it's i I think the reason it's been number one on so many people's lists for so long is because it's it's just kind of this um 
it's kind of this moment that filmmakers can look at and go, well, that's the moment right there. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I'm aspiring to be because mm-hmm. it, you know, it's it has social relevancy. It's kind of the um, the epitome of filmmaking. You know, it has all of this technical stuff that has come together in like brilliant sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, it's Orson Welles with his acting and with his. Um, you know, challenge to the system and everything. You know, it's it's very much kind of a a rallying cry, I think, for filmmakers. I think mm-hmm. that's why it's it's been number one on the list for so long. Um, you know, it's 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 the embodiment of the medium, if you will. Um, and, and I think that's a hard place for a film to sit um, because because I don't know that the movie on its own deserves that kind of weight on it. I think I think mm-hmm. it's a great movie. That's a lot of added pressure to it. I think if it didn't have that to live up to, people might actually appreciate the movie more in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Vertigo, I don't think, has much of any of that. You know, it has the Vertigo shot, which is definitely, has been influential on on filmmaking. Mm -hmm. You know, and, um, you know, I don't even think, personally, I don't think this is even the best of Hitchcock's movies. Um, But, you know, it, I do think it is one of his most multi-layered sorts of movies. And I think, I think you you said, I think you kind of encapsulated this for me a little earlier when we were talking before, but kind of, this is what I wanted to say. And you kind of said it in, in a very simple sentence is that, um, Vertigo is the movie that Citizen Kane inspires filmmakers to go make. Exactly. Um, you know, once you've once you've been inspired with all that stuff that Citizen Kane come up, comes up with and, and you know pushes you out to go do, you go okay. I want to make something that has all of this interesting social commentary and these layers, and I want it to be you know philosophical and to have lots of things to discuss. And I want to use the camera in new ways. And is there is there anything that hasn't been done before? Mm-hmm. Go with, let, let's invent something. Let's do something. And you know because they might not some of the same technology still existed. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, all the same technology still existed, but not a lot of really new technology had progressed from Citizen Kane to here. But there were some new things. Let's exploit those things. Let's do this cool title sequence. Let's come up, you know, find that great camera operator. Give me something that gives you the feeling of vertigo. I don't mm-hmm. know what that does. Make it so. Yeah, that yeah. to me, this is because yeah, of it, Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah, you know, it has, it has all of this stuff that ch- challenges kind of the social mores of the time. You know, really, you know, some of the sexual tension and the, you know, the, the, the different things that it really pushes through. You know, it's, it's all of that kind of stuff that, um, that Citizen Kane maybe inspires. And, um, you know, at the same time, I could see this one potentially having more layers to discuss and more... Uh, you know, it's a little, it's a little more current. It's not, it's not a current movie by any means, but you know, it's, it's what ten years later ten years on, later, exactly, um, ish, ish, and you know, and so it hits a different set of people as it comes out, mm-hmm. and and the re-releases of it hit different sets of people. Well, exactly, so, I think it was, similar to Citizen Kane, it wasn't a phenomenal success when it was released. Mm-hmm. It's been in subsequent years, subsequent uh, relaunches that it has um, gotten the cult status and like the. the the praise it now has mm-hmm. yeah yeah so uh for me like i said i don't even think this is the best of hitchcock's movies um i think it's a good movie mm-hmm. it's a very good movie um i love how it keeps you guessing it for me it plays a little too long i i you know yeah. if i was making it today you know i'd cut 30 minutes out of it if i could i which i think i could pretty easily um yeah. i think there's a lot of 
I think there's a lot of extra stuff. But at the same time, that also allows it to have some breathing room and to really see these characters develop and things. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's worth putting in that extra 30 minutes to watch through it. It's, it's a very good movie for me. It's not... It's To me, it's not the height of filmmaking. It's not the number one movie of all time. But it is a really, really solid mystery thriller mm-hmm. um, that goes a lot deeper than most mystery thrillers will ever take you. Yeah, I agree. To me, um, this is no citizen thing. <laughs> um, I, I I might be interested at some point for us to just take Citizen Kane off the list, just to be kind of like we're going to put this over here because it's not even fair anymore to make this the number one film of all time because it it is too big of a movie and maybe maybe it just we need to pull it off the off the whole list and put it in a separate category and see what other movies we think are the greatest that come after Citizen Kane. I don't know. Um, I agree with just about everything you said. To me, this is, this. in trying to compare the two, this was a more enjoyable movie, like a more fun movie, a movie that I enjoyed sitting through more than Citizen Kane. Um, that being said, it's like, I, 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 I find it almost laughable that this could be like the number one movie of all time. It's just like, it, it, it's not. It, 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 I mean, it has a lot of really great things going on. I, I love the character stuff. I like, like you said, I think it is about thirty minutes too long. Um, that being said, I think this is the kind of movie that I'm okay with it being kind of yeah this absolutely. long. And I think this is the kind of movie to me that it might be hard to market this or sell this, but this is the kind of movie I would like to see in theaters that has the kind of time in the theater too that it would have that great word of mouth. People just going. Have you guys seen Vertigo? It's out in theaters right now. You guys should totally go see Vertigo instead of going to go see um, Transformers 7. Go see Vertigo instead. You know, I would love for that kind of thing to exist because this is kind of the kind of movie that I kind of like. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it definitely it definitely has that twist to the mm-hmm. story that, you know, has- I, I think is really excellent. Um, and, you know, to me, this really... You know that that Hitchcock twist. This is kind of the epitome of that. And, yeah, it and, does. You know, and, it, I had a couple little problems with some of the storytelling. Um, like, there's a character named Midge who is uh, John's best friend or Scotty's best mm-hmm. friend. Um, who very little is said about her. Like, there, it's it, they have this very strange relationship that is never completely defined. And I wanted a little bit more mm-hmm. from that. Well, what's interesting is because I like her so much. Right? I actually really like her character, so I could have. I could have taken about 30 minutes less of other stuff and added like 15 more minutes of her into the movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I kind of wanted, I kind of almost expected him to kind of get this weird wake up call. And he's like, why do I care about this blonde? I have this blonde, <laughs> you know? And cause I thought she was interesting and more grounded. Um, I think the documentary kind of called her earthy, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> she just seems more like a real person than this weird. Interesting little side note mm-hmm. for those who have seen, um, um, oh the uh, the Christmas movie with Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. Thank you. Sorry, mine went completely blank there. Uh, there's a scene at the bank where there's kind of the run on the bank, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a woman who comes in and asks for only like seventeen dollars out of the bank versus everybody trying to get all of their money. And Jimmy Stewart hugs her. Same actress. Oh, cool. So if you ever wanted to know what other movies they were in together, yeah, there you go. I really liked her, but yet like very little is kind of done with her. She's kind of almost there to be exposition kind of almost to be like to be someone he can talk to and we can kind of learn more about him um i kind of wish they had given it to a um a male character 
because there's with her with them being hanging out alone in her loft apartment while she draws things and maybe it's just because as a as a people we kind of see a man and a woman together we expect them to get together to have some kind of weird love issue and we find out that they do um but little very little zone that we kind of find out that they were once engaged but she broke off the engagement and yet the way they're the story kind of plays out. She seems to maybe still have feelings for him, maybe. But then she disappears about halfway through the film and is never referenced again, which is, which was kind of disconcerting to me. Like, I kind of wanted to know more. Like, where's her husband? Is she with anybody? Why is she, you know, there's a, there's a, a scene where they talk about bras because she's helping market one that's new and revolutionary. And like, that doesn't really go anywhere. And so, so it's some weird little things that kind of come up that I could have, I would have appreciated a little bit more exploration. Um, that being said, this isn't my favorite Hitchcock film. Um, and I don't know, like Roger Ebert's review of this kind of goes into this exploration or this theory of the movie being like this meta statement on Hitchcock himself. And I don't think that's what this movie set out to be in any way. Like, I don't know. I kind of felt like that's what Ebert kind of felt like it was. I don't, think that was hitchcock's intent i think it's an interesting thing to look at and go and and see how this movie almost kind of encapsulates a lot of what hitchcock did like when you look at his movies he's kind of no like all of his women are blondes and they're kind of like they're icy and removed and a little bit distant and that's what jimmy stewart tries to make this girl judy he tries to push her into that but i know you have to do it this way you have to you know behave well it's it's very interesting because you know hitchcock was always very so particular about things and Mm -hmm. you know costuming and hairstyles and things and then jimmy stewart does that exact same thing you know i i think there are definite I think there are definite echoes of Hitchcock throughout this. Yeah. I don't think he consciously set out and said, "I'm going to make a movie about me." Right. But I think he, I think he did make a movie that he resonated with the story yeah. of, and so I think there is kind of that element of Hitchcock and his personality that you can see in this movie. Yeah, Barbara Bell Geddes, who plays Midge, she's interviewed on, in the documentary, and it's really, I think it was her. It was either her or Kim Novak. I think it was. It might have been Kim Novak. I apologize, uh, but basically, when she showed up on set, she said she was really nervous. So she kept going over to Hitchcock, going, "Am I doing it right? How do you want me to do it like this?" And he's like, "Hey, I hired you because you're talented. I don't care how you act. You know how to act. Just mm-hmm. do this." Yeah. But what yeah. what he was interested in is all I want, all I need you to do is wear what I tell you to talk. You know, in this rhythm, he, he gave her this very specific rhythm mm-hmm. and, and stand where I tell and you stand, to stand where I tell you to stand. Everything else, I don't care. <laughs> you know, and so it, it, it is interesting because you do see that uh, with Jimmy Stewart's character, and so there's some interesting things going on in the movie. I do feel like, as of right now, the AFI has it at the number nine slot, and I feel like that's pretty decent. I wouldn't mind it being a little bit lower, considering some of the films that are on this list. I feel like there are some other stronger Better films movies. out there, um, but this is a good movie. This is, I mean, we enjoyed it. We kind of. When it ended, it kind of left us with this kind of feeling of like, huh, I wonder what... Mm-hmm. And we had to kind of think about it and talk about it a little bit more to really kind of get to the bottom of it, which is kind of a fun thing to do, um, mm-hmm. which is something that Kelly and I, you know, and I know you and I, Lauren, we, we enjoy doing that kind of going, well, what was that about? Did you notice this too? And that was kind of interesting. And so that means, what? You know, so mm-hmm. it's not a, a cut and dry movie that you can just kind of 
walk yeah. in, watch, leave, and go do something else. It's something that you really do need to kind of root around in to get to the bottom of to and, see you know, what's it, going on. Yeah, and it's definitely the kind of movie, you know, once you do leave the, the theater, you, you it will stick with you. You're going to have images kind of that you remember out of it. You know, it's it's very good at that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's it, it sticks with you. It definitely has that stickiness that that I like in a movie. Yeah. Um, you know, I really like that whole thing where you have to where you have to process and unpack when you're done and, you know, maybe even go back and rewatch it at some point to kind of see what you missed the first time or, yeah. or to try to try to figure out kind of maybe what something meant a little bit better or mm-hmm. you know and, and I do. I that's that's to me that's what I like about this movie. And and not just but so many of Hitchcock's movies. I think that's kind of one of his strong points is he really does create a lot of layered sorts of characters and films and things that really stand up to multiple watches. I, you know, uh, I think he he definitely was a fantastic filmmaker. Um and you know, there's there's a reason he's one of my favorite filmmakers. Um yeah. So yeah, uh, so if this isn't your favorite Hitchcock film, Scott, what what are some movies that maybe you would suggest? What what is your favorite Hitchcock that you've seen up till now? Oh, my favorite Hitchcock I might be to catch a thief. Uh, that honestly, that's that's actually my favorite Hitchcock. It's probably not his greatest movie. Yeah, but, like, but I really like that movie. It's just it's a, a fun, good movie. <laughs> it's a really, really watchable. Really, yeah. Um, I I just love Cary Grant mm-hmm. and Grace Kelly yeah. and their chemistry in that movie. I think is it's it's one of my favorite on screen romances of all time. Yeah, and so that movie is like right at the top. That or Rear Window. I mean, to me, Rear Window is almost flawless it's just like it's such a great movie with such a relatable hook you know Mm -hmm. such a a thing that once you finish watching rear window you can't help but look next door across the fence you can't help but kind of go what's going on around me and the the conclusions you jump to and the things that are you know it's a legitimately scary movie about a guy in a wheelchair who can't move anywhere and it's just like it's great (laughs) you know i'd probably it would probably be between those two but since I, my knee-jerk reaction was to catch a thief, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, those are probably, those are probably the two uh, towards the top of my list. Um, North by Northwest is really good too. It's mm-hmm. kind of, um, it's more of a spy movie than a than a thriller. You know, kind of getting you into that weird mm-hmm. mystery kind of place. It's it's definitely more of a spy sort of thing. Um, but uh, North by Northwest is kind of that classic. Um, if you ever hear about the Hitchcock MacGuffin, this is like the movie. That is has the ultimate Hitchcock MacGuffin in it. It's kind of that that sort of thing, and I, I think that's on our list too, isn't it? Isn't North by Northwest think, on the I, AFI? I believe it is. So I'm I'm sure we'll be hitting up a, a review of that one. If at some not, point we can too. just because we want to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but the, I, I would say all of those. Um, other movies. It is currently uh, number fifty-five on the AFI top one hundred. So we'll we'll be hitting that in the next sometime. <laughs> um, right between Jaws uh, and Mash. Well, there you go. <laughs> Um, something else I would say, you know, a more recent kind of film that has some of the twists and turns that a movie like um, Vertigo has, mm-hmm. uh, David Fincher's The Game. Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of, in my mind, it's it's one of David Fincher's overlooked sort of movies. I don't think nearly as many people have seen it as it deserves to have have seen it. Yeah, it's I don't. To me, it's a very um, smart and um, you know, the first time I saw it, it kept me. I had no idea yeah. 
the twists it was going to take. And, you know, very similar to the way Hitchcock structured a movie. You know, something would happen, and then you'd get pulled in a whole different direction that you were not expecting. And Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it very much... Um, is kind of one of those movies that unpacks the more you watch it. It's yeah. it's probably not quite as layered and deep as as uh, Vertigo, yeah. but um, it definitely has a lot more of the pacing issues that you know that it, it paces a lot better today than than maybe some of these older films do. Mm-hmm. And uh, definitely a movie I like. A uh, movie that I would recommend um, is The Prestige, one of my Absolutely. favorite films of all time. It's definitely in my top ten, and I a agree. movie completely just about obsession. Um, mm-hmm. Two warring ma- magicians, you know, basically who are. Uh, I don't want. I don't want to talk about it. With one upping each other, basically. <laughs> it's it's, it's a, one of the first films I remember seeing that I really went. This is a new story. I mean, while obsession is a very old theme, the way it's told is just something I've never seen before, and I really just adore that movie. And it's one that you could watch multiple times, and you always find new little clues and hints and. Other things. One of Christopher Nolan's films he made with Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman and Michael Caine and Scarlett Johansson. Great cast. David Bowie yeah. Uh, yeah, as it's, Tesla. It's great. <laughs> it's a, yeah. It's it definitely. I agree. It's in it's in my top films. I love the Prestige yeah. significantly. Um, so yeah, there's some there's some other things to watch uh, and definitely you know check out Vertigo if you haven't. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, we've spoiled it for you at this point, so you should have watched it before listening Shame to us. But, <laughs> but it's still, uh, even if you know what's going to happen, I think it's still worth watching. So, um, all right. Well, that is our episode here. Hope you uh, have a better understanding of Vertigo mm-hmm. and maybe even Citizen Kane now, as we've un- you know compared the two a little bit. Um, come back if you this have, week. I'm not sure what we're going to be reviewing yet. <laughs> but yeah, come back next week for another movie. Yeah, and uh, if you have any thoughts on the movies uh, that we've talked about, um, you know, let us know on Twitter, Movies You Should, uh, or on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Movies You Should, or at our website, MoviesYouShouldLove.com. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at MoviesYouShouldLove.com. 